This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Post-Cardiac Arrest Syndrome by Dr. Alan DeCon. Hello, my name is uh, Alan DeCon. I'm a, a pediatric intensivist from, uh, from Edmonton in Canada. I work as, uh, at the uh, Stollery Children's Hospital at the uh, University of Alberta there. Um, what I'm going to be speaking uh, to you about uh, is, over the next 45 minutes, is to touch on uh, issues surrounding post-cardiac arrest care for, uh, for children and, and by extrapolation as well uh, involving adults. Um, the objectives we're going to touch on are going to be as follows. We're going to start off by speaking a little bit about what defines post-cardiac arrest syndrome in children and its pathophysiology. Um, and then to illustrate some of the challenges that we have in, in uh, taking the evidence and putting it into practice surrounding this topic, we're going to uh, contrast the evidence and the treatment guidelines um, that involve uh, two specific aspects of post-cardiac arrest management. First of all, we'll speak to temperature-targeted management, and then uh, after that, we'll speak a little bit to um, post-resuscitation uh, oxygenation strategies. So after we've reestablished uh, a perfusing rhythm, what should we be doing when it comes to targeted ox oxygen saturations? I'll start, out, start off by, uh, by stating that I have no financial conflicts of interest. Um, academically, some minor uh, conflicts of interest. I am the, the co-chair of uh, the ILCOR um, Pediatric Task Force. Um, that was responsible for generating the 2010 Consensus on Science and Treatment Recommendations for Resuscitation document. I am also the, currently the chair of the American Heart Association's Emergency Cardiovascular Care Pediatric or PAL subcommittee. And I am as well the, uh, the past chair of Heart and Stroke Canada's Policy and Advisor Committee on Resuscitation. Defining Post-Cardiac Arrest Syndrome in Children so I'll start off by saying that one of the challenges that we face when it comes to speaking about this topic in regards pediatrics is that there is an incredibly limited amount of pediatric human data on post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Um, and unfortunately what that leaves us with is, is having to use extrapolations from a, a lot of other sources of literature. Um, the animal models do have some relevance, but still at the end of the day they are animal models. Um, Adult human studies do exist when it comes to uh, post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Needless to say, even those are relatively sparse. And then when it comes to specifically pediatric studies, we're left with having to extrapolate from uh, disease states that may involve cardiac arrest but may not. So um, basically those, uh, the literature that we have extrapolated from includes submersion injury or drowning, uh, neonatal hypoxic ischemic injury, hypoxic brain injury, traumatic brain injury, and uh, also the, uh, the physiology and pathophysiology of infants and children after cardiopulmonary bypass, specifically when they are uh, having a, a corrective heart surgery. So needless to say, our, our dilemma ends up being that at this point in time, uh, much of our recommendations around therapy are based upon limited literature and a lot of extrapolation. 
Why does it end up mattering um, when it comes to the post-cardiac arrest syndrome? What, what difference does it make whether we have a clear understanding of physiologically what's happening? Um, and can we actually change the outcome of this syndrome? Well, increasingly over the, last, uh, over the last few years, we've ended up seeing literature that shows that we can make a significant impact when it comes to return of spontaneous circulation in children uh, that had in-hospital cardiac arrest um, in multiple settings and even in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest setting, although not as, uh, as positive outcomes as, as what we see in the in-hospital setting. Unfortunately, as you will see from this slide, what happens is, is that there is a dramatic drop-off when it comes to patient survival between uh, re-establishing a perfusing uh, circulation and even 24 hours after that time. And unfortunately, even further, when it comes to the, uh, the loss of survivors between 24 hours post-event and survival to hospital discharge. So clearly, many of those deaths that we end up seeing um, are not just in the immediate cardiac arrest period, but they are in that post-cardiac arrest phase. And hopefully, by having a clear understanding of why we end up losing children uh, during that time, we'll be able to hopefully uh, change therapy to actually change outcomes. So maybe the first question to ask is, why is it that we end up losing children after an apparently successful resuscitation from cardiac arrest? For how common cardiac arrest is in children, and unfortunately it is relatively common, the data surrounding this is, is quite sparse. Um, we do know from a study in, uh, uh, about seven years ago in Toronto, where they ended up looking at um, pediatric cardiac arrest in the intensive care setting. Um, they ended up um, analyzing what ended up happening with patients after a return of spontaneous circulation um, after a cardiac arrest. Um, in their experience, 40% uh, of the, the patients that ended up dying after ROSC um, ended up dying as a result of um, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy that occurred after discussion between the healthcare team and the family. Um, less than 20% uh, died because of uh, do, uh, associated with do not resuscitate orders and an even smaller percentage died um, with a diagnosis of brain death. Unfortunately, one of the limitations of, of uh, even the limited data we have is that um, a significant percentage, 40% of uh, patients ended up dying with really an unclear understanding that we're left with as to why, why they ended up dying. From, from the adult data, we do end up knowing that two-thirds of all uh, adult deaths after the, uh, the post-resuscitation period are as a result of neurologic injury. So we're left wondering whether or not the majority of those pediatric deaths are, are likewise um, uh, associated with decisions made based upon patient neurologic injury. But we do know, at least anecdotally, that there are patients that also end up uh, dying um, with refractory heart failure. Um, or even multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Pathophysiology of post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Physiologically, what happens after we've reestablished a, a perfusing rhythm? Well, clearly, the hypoxic ischemic injury to the body is a global injury. Um, and what ends up happening is that that injury, uh, during which there is a no-flow state, is then worsened again with reestablishing uh, perfusion, and really this reperfusion injury uh, can have significant, uh, significant detrimental effects on, 
on patient outcome. The severity of that, uh, of the, um, that whole body injury uh, as a result of the uh, primary and then reperfusion injury is variable. And it's, it's dependent upon a number of factors, um, some or many of which we probably, uh, it's very difficult for us to control, and maybe some of which we can control. And these factors include uh, individual uh, uh, factors that uh, are you know, likely associated with uh, an individual's uh, predisposition to how they react to a hypoxic ischemic injury, uh, the duration of the ischemic injury, as well as what the cause of the cardiac, cardiac arrest is, whether or not it's primary cardiac or hypoxic ischemic. And clearly, the outcome of the patient is definitely uh, tends to be associated with, with what other comorbidities the patient is facing uh, going into the cardiac arrest. We know that the tissue oxygen debt and the whole body ischemia that the patient experiences leads to uh, a endothelial injury and an activation of a, of a systemic um, inflammatory response that ultimately progresses to modes or multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. And, and many of the biochemical features that we end up seeing in the post-cardiac arrest state are, are very similar, some of them even identical to what is seen in the multiple organ dysfunction syndrome that is seen with sepsis. And this is a a study, a relatively small study, but still a study that, that illustrates these, these findings, these similarities between um, sepsis and the uh, post-cardiac arrest syndrome um, uh, physiologic state. This is a, a study that looked, uh, that compared patients, specifically adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, to uh, adults that um, had been admitted to hospital with sepsis and likewise comparing to a group of healthy volunteers and looking at a variety of cytokines and receptors that could be analyzed. Um, and needless to say, what was, what was found in these patients in the, in the, in the post-cardiac arrest state is that their profile of cytokines and inflammatory mediators was very, very similar to that seen with patients with, with profound sepsis, which was, once again, quite different than what is seen in, in healthy volunteers. If we then take the next step and actually look at what the change in the profile of those inflammatory mediators is in the hours and days after the initial event, we end up finding that comparing the uh, patients with sepsis to the patients that have suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the profile of the cytokines as well as the pattern is very, very similar, where what happens is, is that we see an initial rise in the hours after the cardiac arrest. And then what happens is within several days of the primary event, the inflammatory process has settled and the cytokines have returned to uh, what we would consider baseline levels. So clearly the post-cardiac arrest syndrome state does have significant parallels with uh, what we end up seeing with uh, profound sepsis. So what do we see in the post-cardiac arrest syndrome in this evolution towards um, a state which is like multiple organ dysfunction syndrome? Well, we think physiologically, uh, based upon animal data, that there is an activation of intravascular coagulation without adequate fibrinolysis. And we, we see associated with this a, a drop in levels of uh, protein C, S, and antithrombin 3. And really what this leads to is a diffuse um, microvascular, intravascular uh, formation of, uh, of fibrin and thrombosis 
And ultimately what that does is it obstructs the microvascular bed and prevents adequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. When it comes to um, how this, this physical obstruction to flow is actually uh, exacerbated um, in brain injury, we end up seeing a number of other mechanisms uh, that actually contribute to the, uh, the end organ dysfunction. Um, as we all know, the brain has limited tolerance to ischemia and the mechanisms of injury from this and then reperfusion are quite complex and they do occur over a period of hours to days. And, and clearly there's lots of animal data to uh, reinforce that uh, the mechanisms include things such as excitotoxicity, disrupted calcium homeostasis, free radical formation, protease cascades, as well as activation of cell death signaling pathways. What do we end up seeing when it comes to post-cardiac arrest brain injury in animal models? Well, immediately after the cardiac arrest itself, especially when we're dealing with prolonged cardiac arrests in the animal models of at least 15 minutes, we see a fixed cerebral no-reflow state. Basically, there ends up being microvascular thrombosis uh, that evolves within the cerebral microvascular bed during cardiac arrest, and that results in cerebral microinfarction, diffuse areas of stroke. This is potentially the reason that at least in animal models of post-cardiac arrest syndrome, there does seem to be some responsiveness to the use of thrombolytic therapy when it comes to improving animal outcome from uh, after cardiac arrest. Well, what do we see in humans after the uh, cardiac arrest uh, and in regards uh, brain injury and uh, physiology? Well, at a macroscopic level, there's actually reperfusion that it, for the few minutes after resuscitation is grossly hyperemic. And that is probably a combination of both the return of spontaneous circulation, so a reestablishment of, of perfusion to the brain, but it's also augmented as a result of elevated cerebral perfusion pressure. And some of that is driven by the excess of both endogenous and exogenous catecholamines as well as coupled with impaired cerebrovascular autoregulation, which we'll speak about in a few minutes. Interestingly, even though we end up seeing this hypertension um, quite commonly in the immediate post-cardiac arrest state or post-ROSC state, um, at least human studies with adults post-cardiac arrest have not shown uh, a positive association between that immediate post-resuscitation hypertension and improved neurologic outcome. So just because you have a high pressure after ROSC is established doesn't mean, at least in adults, that your outcome will be improved. As I alluded to earlier, there are concerns that cerebral autoregulation after return of spontaneous circulation is not normal. And what has been seen in limited adult studies is that, um, and this is a study from Klaus that was published in Stroke over 10 years ago, um, where what they did is they, they compared um, by the use of a transcranial Doppler um, cerebral blood flow velocity, plotted it against mean arterial pressure, and tried to generate an autoregulation curve in patients both after cardiac arrest as well as some healthy volunteers. So once again, the hope 
to be able to identify what the is appropriate autoregulation in uh, patients after they have been successfully resuscitated. What Klaus ended up finding was that only about half of their patients um, had normal uh, cerebral autoregulation. When they went on to try and identify the autoregulation curves for those patients that, th that they could, um, they compared it to the autoregulation curves of their healthy volunteers. And what they found is that the lower limit of autoregulation could be identified in, in many of these patients. Um, needless to say, the lower level of autoregulation for the volunteers was significantly less than the five patients, the five survivors uh, after cardiac arrest, uh, what their le lower level of autoregulation was. And this left them to wonder whether or not the blood pressure should indeed be kept at a higher level than what would normally be accepted in patients after cardiac arrest. Do we need to push for hypertension after ROSC in order to maintain acceptable cerebral perfusion? Well, needless to say, what we have seen from, from other adult studies, and once again, these are retrospective adult studies of in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, still relatively limited numbers, um, but still what these studies have shown is that when they've looked at not just the immediate blood pressure, but actually blood pressure in the hours after spontaneous circulation is reestablished, that there does indeed appear to be a positive association with neurologic outcome. The higher your blood pressure several hours after resuscitation, the more likely you're going to have a positive neurologic outcome. Retrospective studies and associations, but still some evidence to suggest that pressure should be higher. If we move on to look at what the brain actually needs when it comes to oxygen delivery, this has been studied um, in a, animals, but also uh, some limited study of a, adults. Uh, humans after uh, resuscitation from cardiac arrest. And what we do know is that the cerebral metabolic rate does fall to less than 50% of normal within two hours of ROSC. Um, needless to say, what is still unclear is whether or not that reduced global cerebral blood flow is uh, responsive to the reduced metabolic requirements. Is there less blood flow because there's less oxygen required? Or is actually the reduced global cerebral blood flow as a result of pathologic vasoconstriction. Either way, the data does suggest to us that overall the global cerebral blood flow is adequate to meet oxidative metabolic demands after resuscitation. So what does this mean for our patient that has actually been successfully resuscitated from cardiac arrest that survives over the next 24 to 48 hours? Well, needless to say, this is a common CT scan that we see in these survivors, and it is a, a CT with significant diffuse cerebral edema. Uh, and this cerebral edema, which is as a result of this, the primary hypoxic ischemic injury as well as the reperfusion injury, um, what happens is we see this edema forming anywhere between 6 and 60 hours after ROSC. Um, the cerebral blood flow normalizes, and then hyperemia relative to cerebral metabolic requirements does appear to develop. There is limited data from uh, human adult studies that suggests that asphyxial cardiac arrest is more likely to lead to early onset radiologic cerebral edema than primary cardiac arrest. Well, what does it actually mean? Just because there's more swelling, do we need to react to uh, in some uh, changed management approach to the presence of more edema? 
Well, needless to say, those patients that have actually been uh, had intracranial pressure monitored after cardiac arrest that have had cerebral edema, it's been found that the majority of adult, adults post-ROSC that remain comatose do so with an intracranial pressure that is less than 20 to 25, and indeed with an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure. So despite the fact that many of our patients end up having cerebral edema post-resuscitation, they don't have intracranial hypertension to an extent that we would otherwise want to intervene and manage. So in summary, what we know is that cerebral blood flow is reduced immediately after cardiac arrest um, and after resuscitation from cardiac arrest due to fixed uh, as well as likely reactive etiologies, although it also appears that that amount of blood flow, although reduced, is adequate to meet cerebral metabolic requirements uh, as long as an age-appropriate blood pressure is maintained. And although abnormalities in cerebral autoregulation would suggest a direct blood pressure dependence, it's unclear what the best mean arterial pressure for an individual is at specific phases of the disease course. So we're left with, should we just accept a low normal blood pressure, a normal blood pressure, or hypertension should we be targeting? And at what point of the phase post-resuscitation do we actually need to change that hemodynamic target? And really, we're left with more questions than we have answers. And finally, although cerebral edema is common after asphyxial injury, there is limited human data that suggests that intracranial hypertension and its treatment is inconsequential. Temperature targeted management. Let's move on to talk about some of the manifestations of postcardiac arrest syndrome and the things that we think may be associated with and potentially causal in worsening neurologic outcome after, after ROSC has been established. We know that from uh, lots of animal data that uh, after cardiac arrest, uh, fever is reasonably common. Now, we see this as well in the pediatric data that we have, and the best data that we have in regards to this comes out of the, um, er some of the early Get With the Guidelines resuscitation work that was published uh, almost 10 years ago. And what it ends up, what it ends up showing that um, during the first 24 hours after cardiac arrest, 43% of patients within the Get With the Guidelines pediatric cohort of, of uh, survivors post-ROSC had at least one temperature of over 38 degrees. And 5% of patients actually had persistent fever uh, with a temperature of greater than 38 degrees. So what they ended up doing is they ended up looking at that cohort of patients that had fever after, uh, after ROSC was established. And what they ended up finding in these children was that after adjusting for potential confounders by multivariate logistic regression, persistent fever in the first 24 hours after cardiac arrest was associated with unfavorable neurologic outcome, um, but it was not associated with an increased likelihood of death. No change in survival, but clearly patients that survived ended up having a worsened neurologic outcome. Well, what do we know from the animal data when it comes to temperature management after cardiac arrest? Well, clearly temperature targeted management therapy or what we used to call therapeutic hypothermia in animals does show uh, or demonstrate reduced neurologic morbidity and mortality. And its benefits are greatest when cooling is started less than 15 minutes after a return of circulation and when it's provided 
for between one and two hours. And from the animal data, there's a suggestion that the beneficial effects are through reduced cerebral metabolic uh, uh, oxygen uh, utilization, as well as through reduction in the generation of reactive oxygen species. It's not just the brain, though. We see that temperature-targeted management has benefits for other organ systems, and specifically the heart. We've seen in uh, animal models of ventricular fibrillation in multiple species that the use of temperature-targeted management, avoidance of fever, can actually end up in post-VF patients, um, lead to animals that have less deterioration in systolic and diastolic function. Needless to say, while this is, uh, is very optimistic if you're, um, if you're an animal, uh, to this point in time there's no human studies that tell us clearly that there's a benefit in, in cardiac uh, function and outcome when the temperature targeted management is used. So it's been over 10 years now since two Sentinel uh, articles were published in the New England Journal um, describing the use of temperature targeted management uh, for adults after cardiac arrest. Uh, the first study, the Haka study that I'll speak about, um, involved both out-of-hospital and in-hospital cardiac arrest victims with ventricular fibrillation. And it was a randomized controlled trial where patients were randomized to either maintenance of normal temperature or a temperature target of between 32 and 34 degrees for 24 hours after the introduction of uh, that temperature targeted management. Needless to say, in their experience, the median time to target temperature was eight hours. Uh, neurologic status was assessed six months after the event. The other paper that was published in the same uh, uh, copy of the New England Journal uh, was the Bernard study. Much smaller number of patients, 77 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims with ventricular fibrillation. Um, patients randomized to maintaining a temperature of 37 degrees compared to patients that had a temperature target of 33 degrees for a 12-hour period, with an average, average temperature at two hours after randomization of 33.5 degrees, and neurologic status assessed at hospital discharge. The reason I end up emphasizing these two studies and some of the differences in the studies is often they're lumped together as, as if they were the same kind of studies, uh, the same kind of um, uh, methodology and the, the same outcomes, but clearly even just from this very high level um, analysis, uh, this, uh, these studies are very different. Needless to say, with that use of uh, post-cardiac arrest temperature targeted management, um, there was uh, benefit, significant benefit, uh, both in favorable neurologic outcome uh, as well as in, in mortality, um, such that the number needed to treat for favorable neurologic outcome with the use of temperature targeted management uh, was six. Now, I think a point that's very um, relevant for us to remember is that this study uh, was just in victims of ventricular fibrillation. There were no patients that had non-VF cardiopulmonary arrest, um, as in what we see with children and with asphyxial cardiac arrest. They were intentionally excluded from these trials. What we've seen since 2002 is temperature targeted management has been integrated into very much a, a, a post-cardiac arrest bundle of care that has led to a, a change in therapy throughout the world in many adult ICUs. Um, when it comes to uh, the data that's come out of that change in practice, we do end up having um, some 
reasonably well-powered studies from, from registry, uh, registry um, data um, that have looked at temperature targeted management. The Dutch experience with 5,000 patients with, with temperature targeted management integrated as part of that bundle of care, they ended up seeing in-hospital cardiac arrest mortality drop by 20%. And the Scandinavian experience has also been quite dramatic in that uh, in, the, in almost 1,000 post-ROSC patients, um, with introducing temperature targeted management, um, good neurologic outcome um, was also significantly improved, and not just in patients with ventricular fibrillation, but in patients with asystole and pulseless electrical activity. So clearly, what we end up seeing is, is at least in non-randomized uh, non uh, data that's uh, come out after the Haka and Bernard studies, is that there appears to be uh, benefit associated with the use of temperature targeted management. The question still remains, is it really that cut and dry? Is the data conclusive enough that we can say that this should be the standard of care even for adults? Well, if we dig a little bit deeper into what these studies end up showing us, I think we're left with, um, we're left with some, some questions as to how we can extrapolate the data to all comers. The Bernard study, it should be noted, ended up excluding women that were less than 50 years of age because of concern of uh, a pregnancy and uh, whether or not temperature-targeted management might have a detrimental impact on the fetus. As well, patients uh, that were on epinephrine uh, at the time of the uh, initial assessment for the study, uh, so specifically those patients that were in cardiogenic shock, um, were actually excluded from the study as well. So, when we take the next step and we look at the Haka study, um, what do we see that raises concern as to the ability to extrapolate this data? Well, probably the most concerning point ends up being that the average temperature in the control group, the normal temperature group, was actually 37.5 degrees. So this control population, if we look at really where the temperature was in the hours after uh, temperature targeted management was introduced to the uh, intervention group, the control group that it was compared against actually had patients where there was a significant percentage of patients that ended up having fever, temperature greater than 38 degrees. So I think that one of the concerns we have in using the HACA data uh, to uh, justify the use of temperature targeted management is that it's actually comparing the use of hypothermia to fever as opposed to hypothermia uh, compared to a control group which has a normal temperature. Other concerns that came out of the Haka study and, and further analysis include the following. Um, the study recruited one patient a week over five years. It took a long time to, uh, to generate adequate um, uh, power within the study uh, to be able to analyze their data. Only 275 of over 3,500 patients that were screened actually entered the study. So we're left to wonder, can we generalize or should we generalize from a study that only had an 8% inclusion rate? The study was discontinued due to funding and slow recruitment. There had been no stopping rules that had been pre-established. Uh, there were no predefined uh, power calculations. The level of coma prior to randomization was not reported, as well as withdrawal of critical care was not standardized within the study. All that aside, a Cochrane review that was carried out in 2009 that looked at all of the temperature targeted management uh, trials to that point, which included four, four trials and one abstract, ended up making the final um, conclusions. Um, and they said that patients treated with temperature targeted management were more likely to reach a good neurologic outcome. 
and that those treated with temperature targeted management were more likely to survive to hospital discharge. Needless to say, even this Cochrane review has been significantly criticized in that um, there were methodologic problems that were not evaluated in the analysis, including quasi-randomization with odd and even dates, early stopping without predefined rules, unplanned adaptive design, baseline differences between the groups, selective outcome reporting, no description of sequence generation and allocation concealment or blindment, and inconsistent reporting of adverse events, which made it difficult to assess harm from the intervention. So in order to try and address some of these concerns, there was a systematic review uh, that was completed in 2011, looking at uh, the Cochrane review data and trying to adjust for those omissions in the original analysis. And what they did is they performed the meta-analysis and a trial sequential analysis analyzing the same five trials and they adjusted for these and then they reported the outcomes and the results using the grade system. And their findings were interesting and then what they found was that based upon the same analysis that the data of, of the data that the Cochrane uh, review had uh, analyzed that the relative risk of death was 0.84, so did not reach significance. The relative risk of poor neurologic outcome was 0.78 and, and did uh, reach significance. Um, but even then, the quality of the evidence that was graded was low. So we have a problem. We have a problem in that the data that is out there is, is by no means perfect, and we're left with with having to make decisions about whether or not we should be using temperature targeted management um, based upon the adult data. All that being said, the 2010 um, guidelines for post-resuscitation care from the American Heart Association emphasized that for comatose patients, defined as a, a lack of meaningful response to verbal commands, adults that had an out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillatory cardiac arrest at where ROSC was reestablished should be cooled to between 32 and 34 degrees for 12 to 24 hours. So it was a, a reasonably strong recommendation. And indeed, induced hypothermia was also to be considered for comatose adult patients with ROSC after in-hospital cardiac arrest of any initial rhythm or after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with an initial rhythm of pulseless electrical activity or asystole. So quite a strong recommendation for the use of temperature targeted management. Point of clarification. In 2015, the American Heart Association updated the guidelines for targeted temperature management in adults post-cardiac arrest, based on a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. In this study by Nielsen et al., adults post-cardiac arrest were randomized to either a targeted temperature of 33 degrees Celsius versus 36 degrees Celsius and found no significant differences in outcomes between these two groups. This led to the most current recommendation that all comatose adults post-cardiac arrest, regardless of etiology, should have a temperature targeted between 32 and 36 degrees Celsius for at least 24 hours post-return of spontaneous circulation. Well, what about pediatrics? What do we have? Well, what we have is limited data, and we have, we have practitioners worldwide that are left with being unclear as to whether or not they should extrapolate the adult data. Before the 2010 guidelines were released, uh, and a study in the United States 
looking at whether or not practitioners and PICUs were using temperature targeted management showed that only 9% of uh, intensivists were consistently using TTM um, and about 40% occasionally used it. But still, the majority of practitioners were not using it. By 2010, in the United Kingdom, things were changing a little bit and almost half of surveyed um, British uh, pediatric intensivists always or often used temperature targeted management after ROSC had been established in cardiac arrests victims that were pediatric. What do we have when it comes to pediatric data to support or refute the use of temperature targeted management? The Daugherty study in 2009 um, was a multi-center study um, that looked at predominantly Canadian experience over a two-year period in post-cardiac arrest care in children and looking at outcomes. Um, over a five-year period, there was uh, over 200 patients that were recruited into the study. Um, and cardiac arrests of greater than three minutes duration or survival for more than 12 hours um, were uh, required in order for the patients to be uh, analyzed within the study. Needless to say, only 79 patients ended up meeting study eligibility. Um, and of those, um, three quarters of the patients that actually were cooled, where they had uh, temperature targeted management, were cooled using ECMO. So it's a very biased, um, select patient population that ended up being analyzed in the Daugherty study when it came to the use of TTM um, in pediatric post-arrest care. What they did find is when they, uh, adjustments were made for the duration of cardiac arrest and the use of ECMO, as well as propensity scores, there was no statistically significant survival benefit to the use of temperature targeted management. And clearly that study, when it comes to how that study, the adult data, and the animal data were overlaid into our evidence evaluation grid to generate the ILCOR recommendations for post-arrest care for children, what we ended up doing is we had limited, very limited high quality um, or reasonable quality literature and it came down to a consensus of experts approach that led to this being the recommendation in 2010 for pediatrics, which was that therapeutic hypothermia may be considered for children who remain comatose after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. Well, Erica Fink's data out of Pittsburgh that was published uh, several years ago ended up showing um, a little bit more experience with the use of post-resuscitation temperature control after cardiac arrest. Once again, some limitations or some, some, some points that need to be kept in mind when we analyze her data is that uh, the age of the patients was very wide, from one week of age to 21 years of age. 90% of the patients were asphyxial cardiac arrests as opposed to primary cardiac arrests. Um, ROSC after in-hospital cardiac arrest was 50% uh, for in-hospital and 48% for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest some of those numbers not being representative of what are seen in, in larger studies. And the overall survival to hospital discharge was actually 45%, which is quite high, considering this is a, a mixed patient population of in-hospital in and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 60% of, their, of uh, their patients that had therapeutic hypothermia provided had an initial temperature of 35 degrees. The median temperature target was 34 degrees, and it was reached by seven hours. Um, and temperature targeted management was maintained for 24 hours, but there was a significant 
breadth of, of, uh, of TTM use, anywhere between 16 and 48 hours. And rewarming was actually quite, uh, quite rapid in that it uh, happened over a six hour period. So point ends up being is that although yes, we end up having 180 infants and children that receive TTM after uh, resuscitation from pediatric cardiac arrest, this is not a consistent patient population and it may be very difficult to extrapolate from. Needless to say, when the treatment and control groups did differ and I've got listed there some of the other differences that, uh, that were seen. At the end of the day, what was seen is that there was no difference in hospital mortality between those patients that had temperature targeted management and those that didn't. But as I said, unfortunately, we may be comparing apples and oranges. These may be very different patient subpopulations. Uh, so I think we're left with, with not having great data to make definitive conclusions. So how are we going to make the conclusion as to what, whether or not we should be using temperature targeted management? The THAPCA study, or the Therapeutic Hypothermia to Improved Survival After Cardiac Arrest in Pediatric Patients study, um, as many of you know, this is being run as both an in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest study. And the inclusion criteria for this study is infants children who have suffered uh, at least a two-minute cardiac arrest in the six hours before study entry. And patients are going to be randomized to either uh, having temperatures of 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for two days um, compared to a control group where the control arm will have a temperature maintained between 36 and 37.5 degrees um, uh, for two days and then normal thermia for another three days. And the primary outcome of that study is going to be survival with good neural, neurologic outcome at 12 months. Point of clarification. The out-of-hospital cardiac arrest arm of the THAPCA trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May 2015 and analyzed data from 260 children suffering out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. This trial did not find a statistically significant difference in improved survival at 12 months post-arrest with good neurobehavioral outcome between patients in the hypothermia and normothermia groups. In interpreting this data, we must keep in mind that both arms of this study received an active intervention in the form of temperature management. That is, children randomized to the normothermia group received cooling interventions to target their core temperature to 36.8 degrees Celsius with a range of 36 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. Additionally, when compared with adult trials, most causes of out-of-hospital arrest in children were the result of respiratory conditions, as opposed to cardiac etiologies in adults, namely ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. Children in the THAPCA trial were also cooled longer compared to adult studies. THAPCA patients were cooled for 120 hours, whereas adult patients were cooled for 36 hours. So what are we left with when it comes to temperature targeted management uh, in children? Well, I think there's, there would be um, little argument that we should at least be treating fever and preventing fever. The evidence for temperature targeted management in pediatrics is low grade. It should be protocolized and, and uh, and potentially, maybe it should be used as part of a post-ROSC package of therapy analogous to how the adults are using it. Many unknowns still exist when it comes to temperature targeted management. Um, 
Is there a specific rhythm that we should be targeting uh, as opposed to all rhythms? Is there an ideal temperature target? What is the timing window of efficacy for its use? How soon is too soon? How late is it too late to, the, to use um, hypothermia in, in these patients? Um, is there a benefit to the use of intra-cardiac arrest temperature targeted management? What is the best technique to cool? How quickly or slowly should we rewarm? Re and when is fever no longer a hazard after patients have been rewarmed? So all of these are still questions that require further study before we can come up with evidence-based conclusions. Post-resuscitation oxygenation strategies. The second topic I'd like to touch on is post-resuscitation oxygenation targets. We know that there are many animal studies that have shown that ventilation with 100% oxygen during and after resuscitation contributes to a free radical mediated reperfusion injury to the brain as well as all organs and it may be associated with more neurologic deficit than ventilation with room air, especially when the high PaO2 is experienced in the first hour after resuscitation. So good animal data that supports this. What do we have beyond animal data? Well, prior to the last guidelines, all we had was one small randomized controlled trial uh, in adults, the Kuzma uh, study, and, and it ended up um, basically randomizing patients to receiving either 30% oxygen or 100% oxygen after uh, ROSC had been established for at least the first 60 minutes post-ROSC. Um, and basically their findings were that there was no statistical difference in serum biomarkers of acute brain injury, no difference in survival to hospital discharge, and no difference in uh, neurologic outcome in survivors. I think the, the points to remember is this was a very small study. It was underpowered to detect important outcome differences. There continues to be data out there suggesting that there may be benefit to restricting oxygen use in patients after uh, cardiac arrest. There are several adult studies, uh, human studies, that suggest that hyperoxia or hyperoxemia may result in vasoconstriction in the coronary and systemic circulation that contributes to hemodynamic instability. So this is not just a, a question and an issue in regards um, uh, cerebral perfusion and brain, brain injury post-resuscitation. This is also has direct relevance to what happens in regards to myocardial uh, function and, and oxygen delivery after resuscitation. So when it came to the 2006, uh, sorry, excuse me, the 2010 guidelines, the, the literature that we were working with to make conclusions was very sparse. We had the Kuzma study and then a lot of animal data. And needless to say, exactly the same time that we were preparing to uh, publish guidelines, um, there was a, a large uh, registry study that ended up uh, releasing some data that ended up contributing to us moving beyond a recommendation that would have been based on the Kuzma study. And what that study um, showed is as following, and this is the Kilgannon study. And this was an adult, so it's an adult um, study looking uh, at multiple American ICUs, uh, collecting data on adults that have been successfully resuscitated from cardiac arrest, and looking at the first blood gas that was performed after admission to the ICU. Now, needless to say, this could be minutes or this could be hours after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. But what they did end up seeing was as follows, that there were a significant number of patients um, that ended up being hyperoxic as well as hypoxic after cardiac arrest. Um, needless to say, when they ended up looking at the outcomes of those patients, the interesting thing is there ended up being a significant, statistically significant um, mortality risk 
with hyperoxia in, in survivors. And in further analysis of their data, what did they find? They found that it was actually dose-related. The higher the PaO2 in adults um, after they'd been resuscitated, um, the worse their survival, um, as well as the worse their neurologic outcome. So in 2010, based upon the, the uh, early release of this data, consensus of experts led to this guideline, which was basically, once ROSC is achieved, adjust the FiO2 to the minimum concentration needed to achieve uh, a transcutaneous or arterial oxygen saturation of at least 94% with the goal of avoiding hyperoxia while ensuring adequate oxygen delivery. So bottom line, wean the FiO2 for a saturation of 100% and maintain the SATs of over 94%. So that study suggested that we should be targeting a lower oxygen saturation, avoid high saturations. Not long after the publication of our guidelines, however, um, there was another registry study that was published coming out of Australasian data. Once again, large number of patients, over 12,000 patients, 125 adult ICUs, and they did the same kind of analysis, looking at the worst blood gas um, in the first 24 hours after ICU admission. So I, a point I should make, this is the worst blood gas as opposed to the first blood gas after ICU admission. So a little bit of a difference when it comes to how the, uh, the study was designed. Interestingly, same kind of profile, hyperoxia relatively uncommon after resuscitation. But what was different as opposed to the statistically significant difference in, in outcome, worse outcome with hyperoxia that the Kogannon study had shown, when they ended up doing their adjustment for multiple factors, PaO2 in patients that were hyperoxic was no longer predictive of hospital mortality. So clearly the point ended up being is that we ended up now having two large registry studies with conflicting results. I think the uh, point needs to be remembered, the Belomo study, much larger than the Kilgannon study, did have a, a, great, a more complete data set. There was a more robust adjustment for illness severity. Um, and uh, interestingly, however, there was a lower mean body temperature in the Australasian study, the Belomo study, um, the mean body temperature being 34.9, as opposed to 36 degrees in the Kogannon study, which made many people wonder whether or not there was potentially a greater use of therapeutic hypothermia or temperature tar targeted management in the Australasian study. So once again, potentially, are we comparing apples and oranges? Are these, are these two studies that were structured, designed, and uh, analyzed in two different ways. Well, we've got neonatal data that shows us um, through uh, meta-analyses of multiple neonatal studies that there clearly is a, a benefit to the use of room air over oxygen in neonates with hypoxic ischemic uh, encephalopathy. And, uh, and that's uh, clearly been uh, uh, ended up um, uh, demonstrated. However, the point to remember is that perinatal HIE is not cardiac arrest. The pathophysiology uh, is different. The patient, uh, patient populations are obviously different. So in the last year, there have been two pediatric studies that have looked at the uh, uh, association of uh, post-resuscitation oxygenation and outcomes. One of them comes from a European and Latin American group um, that published on resuscitation. And what it ended up showing, uh, their study design, this was a prospective international observational multicenter study, um, and they ended up using the same kind of cutoffs 
to define hyperoxia, hypoxia, uh, and normoxia. Um, so hyperoxia being uh, PaO2 of greater than uh, 300 or greater, hypoxia being less than 60. Interestingly, they also looked at um, the relationship of uh, PaCO2 and outcomes. And what they ended up seeing is that for um, several differences from the adult data, first of all, that um, hyperoxia quite uncommon, and interestingly, hypoxia less common than what was seen uh, in, uh, in the post-cardiac arrest phase uh, of adults. Um, clearly, what was demonstrated in their study of over 500 uh, children, once again between a month and 18 years of age, so a broad range of uh, patients, what they ended up seeing was that while hypoxia was more, was more common than what we would have anticipated, regardless of where the PaO2 was post-resuscitation, there was no association um, with worse outcome. Um, what they did find, which is very interesting, is that there was clearly an association with, um, uh, with hypocarbia being associated with worsened neurologic outcome. Um, and uh, the uh, proposed uh, reasons for that include that cerebrovascular reactivity to changes in PaCO2 after cardiac arrest um, uh, may be preserved in some, in some children um, after, after cardiac arrest. A second study that came out uh, uh, this last year, uh, the Ferguson study, um, once again registry data um, coming, out of, uh, coming out of Europe, 33 uh, pediatric intensive cares um, and uh, 122 patients and basically uh, identified uh, almost 2,000 children that had had documented cardiac arrest and had a blood gas that was performed within an hour of PICU admission. And the primary outcome of their study was PICU mortality and they looked at the relationship uh, or associations between post-cardiac arrest oxygenation and outcome. And they ended up finding a similar pattern of oxygenation um, post-cardiac arrest, um, hypoxia more common than hyperoxia. Interestingly, what they found is they found that there was an association between PaO2 and outcomes, but it wasn't what we had anticipated. What, we ended, what they ended up finding is that clearly with increasing PaO2, there is a gradual rise um, in the probability of death with increasing PaO2. Hyperoxia is indeed statistically worse for you. Interestingly though, and maybe not all that surprising, is that hypoxia is much worse in, uh, when it comes to being uh, uh, an association with death in children after cardiac arrest than hyperoxia. And this, when they ended up breaking patients out to, uh, into the two groups of either with or without congenital heart disease, the association was consistent in both groups. So I think a few cautions in regards to extrapolating from the Ferguson study. It, once again, it is retrospective. Both of these studies are, uh, look at associations as opposed to being able to determine the cause and effect. The outcome of the study was PICU mortality, not survival to hospital discharge. Um, as well as a third of the patients from the PicoNet database uh, were actually excluded as a blood gas hadn't been done within one, an hour of ICU admission. So once again, is there a degree of uh, selection bias here? Um, temperature targeted management was not used at the time of study in more than 50% of UK pediatric intensive care units. So how does this relate to a world where now 
um, uh, temperature targeted management is much more aggressively being used in many parts of the world. And a final point is that about three quarters of the patients that were included within the study were transported in from other centers. And as a result, the blood gases that were analyzed, although they were very quick after ICU admission, they were potentially significantly longer since the event itself. So, a lot of data. What's the final takeaway message when it comes to this oxygenation target that we should be looking for after resuscitation of children from cardiac arrest? The bottom line is the final story is still not in. I think what we do have is we have animal data, neonatal data, and a lot of registry data that suggests that post-ROSC normoxia, so normal saturations, is good. Hypoxia is bad and clearly worse than hyperoxia. So uh, whether or not there is, there is need um, or the ability to uh, perform a prospective study is somewhat up in the air. Or whether or not we are going to be left with just using common sense um, and, um, and basically say avoid hypoxia, avoid hyperoxia, and try and achieve a normal oxygen saturation. So just to review, I think what we've tried to address over the, over the course of this uh, presentation is, an, uh, is to create an understanding around what defines post-cardiac arrest syndrome in children and its pathophysiology, and also to look specifically at two aspects of post-arrest care, specifically temperature-targeted management as well as post-resuscitation oxygenation strategies. Thanks very much for your attention. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.